Uh, you know, one of my favorite uh, stories about football, as you guys know, my one of my favorite sports to watch is football. Uh, one of my favorite stories about football is actually about a college game that happened back in 1929. And it was the Rose Bowl, one of the most watched and most celebrated college championship games of the year. And back in 1929, Georgia Tech was playing the University of California in the Rose Bowl. And in that game, uh, as they were f uh, playing, suddenly, University of California, they fumbled the ball, meaning they kind of let the ball loose. And one of the Georgia Tech players, his name was Roy, uh, picked it up. And in the midst of the struggle for the ball, he got disoriented and he started, started running the wrong way. So he started running in the opposite direction and he was about to score for the opponents. But luckily, one of his teammates, teammates was faster than him, caught up to him and tackled him. And then as he was getting tackled, he's like, what are you doing? And he was saying, what are you doing? You're running the wrong way. And then he's like, oh my goodness. Uh, but all of a sudden, as they tried to score, uh, Georgia Tech, they gave up the ball on downs. And then UFC, they took over again. And so UFC, they were so close to their own goal line, thanks to Roy. Uh, but right when the half, the first half was about to end, they scored. And Roy was feeling horrible uh, because he realized it was his fault. And they were losing by the margin of you know, seven points, which was how much they gave them. And so it was halftime. And during halftime, this is when the coach kind of gives a pep talk or if they messed up, they're like screaming in their faces. And the whole country, as they were watching, everybody was wondering, what's the coach going to say to Roy? You know, it's like, is he going to get killed? Is, you know, is he going to survive? And so everybody was kind of anticipating what he's going to say. Even the teammates, you know, there was a hush because everybody was like, they felt so bad for him. And see, everybody was sitting on their bench, you know, waiting for the coach to say something. And the coach was just kind of, you know, standing there just wondering what he was going to say. And Roy was in the corner just weeping, crying like a baby because he felt so horrible. You know, because the whole world, millions upon millions of people watched this championship game, you know. And finally, the, uh, the alarm rang, signifying the end of the half. And then, right then, right before the players left the uh, room, the coach declared, everybody who started the first half, you guys are starting the second half. Go. That was it. So everybody rushed off, but Roy stayed back and he, with his cheeks running down with tears. He was saying, coach, you can't do it. You, I just can't do it. I made a fool out of you. I made a fool out of our school. I made a fool out of our team. I just can't do it. Don't send me back in there. I just messed up so bad. Don't send me back in there. And the coach took him by the shoulders, looked straight in his eyes, says, Roy, the game is not over, and you are still part of our team. Now get back in there and finish strong. And he went in there. And that story, every time I hear it, just gives me tingles. Because it is a story of hope, it is a story of grace and of mercy. And it is a story that displays that this coach was a pretty awesome coach, giving this second chance to his player. And one of the things that I realized is second chances given to people are life's greatest gifts. One of the greatest things that we can receive in our life is a second chance. Amen? You see, for a student, a second chance can mean the difference between taking a whole year over again versus starting a new career. Actually, I had a friend when I was in college. Uh, you know, she was promised an amazing job after school. And she kind of coasted the last semester, and she started kind of, you know, ditching class and things, and then she failed one of her classes. She got a D. 
And uh, she went up to her prof and was like, prof, you know, I have this amazing job. Please, you have to let me pass this class. Do something. Can I take it over? Give me another chance. His reply, I do not give out mercy. Don't look to me for mercy. And so she was weeping, and I saw her after. I felt so horrible. And so me and her friends, we were like, hey, look, talk to your academic advisor. Try something. So she talked to her advisor, and she found out that because she took that course by a grade system, ABCD, uh, that's why she failed, because she had to get a C or above. But the advisor was like, you know what? I'll switch your status. You can do this if you want. Switch your status to a pass-fail, and with your D, you could actually pass. And she was oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. And she did that. And you would not believe, she was like jumping on clouds afterwards. You know, just the joy of receiving a second chance. Because that course was only offered in the second semester. So if she wanted to pass, she'd have to wait a whole year to pass again. And so just the eyes that lit up and just the joy of our hearts. And so for the student, it can mean the huge difference between a year versus a new career. And for the athlete, it can mean the difference become between being a hero or a zero like Roy. And you know, uh, for those whose lives have been spared, a second chance can infuse new energy for us to live with purpose. And you know, the, his teammates, Roy's teammates, after they saw his second half play, they all said, you, I have never seen anyone play so hard in my life before. And that second chance infused him with new courage. And today, we're going to see Average Joe, we're going to continue on in our book study of Jonah, given a second chance by God. And we saw that God saved his butt big time last week. Uh, now he's going to be given a second chance to be on mission with God. And before we continue, uh, let's just review a little bit where we've been. In chapter 1, we saw Jonah running from his assignment. right? But also, we learned that even though he tried to run, we can run, but we cannot hide from the mercies of God that pursue his people. He plunges into the sea, but God provides a fish to save him. And in chapter 2, we saw Jonah's celebration of God's salvation over his life. That while he was in the belly of the great fish, he cries out to God. God saves him and he celebrates his salvation and consecrates his life to God once again. And with that consecration, God causes the fish to vomit. And we saw the grace of God in the fish and in the vomit. And Jonah is safe again on dry land. And today, we will look at Jonah back on mission with God and the heart of God for the people of Nineveh. So open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3 and follow along your outlines as we explore how God reveals himself to be the God of second chances. So, what's the first thing that we learn in this portion of the text? First thing that we learn today is that God gives second chances to his servants. That he is a God who gives second chances to his servants. Let's look at Jonah chapter 3, starting from verse 1. Ready? Let's read that. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. All right, so he comes to God, he comes to Jonah, second time. Verse 2, it says, Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. So this verse, this first verse, begins with grace. There is gospel in that verse. Because look at what he says there. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. So after all his rebellion, after all his disobedience, God gives Jonah another chance. For God gives second chances to his servants. And after God commanded the fish to vomit up Jonah, 
God does not give up on him. He could have easily said this, right? And again, if it was us, we'd be like, all right. God could have said, all right, I saved your butt, right? You stubborn punk, right? So, you know what? You don't want to be on mission with me? Fine. I will save you. I'll be gracious to you. I'll save your life. But forget you, man. I'm going to look for a faithful guy. I'm going to look for another prophet who has my heart. God doesn't do that. He gives him another chance to be on mission with God. So, a wonderful truth that we learned here is that God does not forsake us even though we fail. Amen? That is a glorious truth of the gospel. Even though we fail, God will not forsake us. Our culture is a culture that says, three strikes and you're out. Right? Forget it. Our culture and our human flesh will always draw a limit. I'll give you a few chances, but you keep going, forget you. Right? God is not like that. God's kingdom culture says, three strikes, let's try that again. 3,000 strikes, let's try that again. Three million strikes? Let's try that again. That is his kingdom culture. Jesus teaches that in Peter. And we looked at that when we looked at forgiveness several weeks back. That when G Peter is asking Jesus, how many times do we forgive? Not three times, not seven times. Seventy times, seven. You see, in God's kingdom counting, you don't. You don't count. You just keep on forgiving. Why does he tell us to do that? Because that is the heart of God. That is how God approaches his servants. Amen? God will never give up on his kids. Therefore, he will never give up on you. No matter how badly you failed, no matter how wretched your sins that you've committed, God will not give up on you. If you are his child, he will not give up on you. No matter how often you failed and no matter how deeply you failed, he will come to you again. You know, more and more I realize that it is not in our good days. It is not in our together days. It is not in our I look good, I feel good, people think I'm good days, that we feel the power of God's love and His grace. Rather, it is in our bad days when we realize how filthy we are, how messed up we are, those are the days that we come to appreciate His love for us the most. You know, I... Uh, one of my favorite authors is Brennan Manning, and he's written a lot of books on the love of God. And one in particular that really impacted my life was his book called Abba's Child. And through it, he uh, shares a lot of his testimonies about how his life was messed up, but in that messed upness, he experienced a new degree of the love of God and the power of his grace. Uh, one story that he shares is when... Um, when he was a Christian, uh, he, prior to his Christian days, he was an alcoholic. He drank a lot. And so after he became a Christian, he promised himself, I'm not going to drink again. I'm not going to get drunk again. Right? So I, I give, I'm going to give my life to Christ. But one day, you know, he had a really bad week, really bad weekend. He got in a massive fight with his wife. He's on bad terms with his children. Things were bad. Uh, everything was bad. And so he was like, oh, my goodness. Uh, and then he turned to the bottle. And so he went to the bar, he started getting drunk, he wanted to forget all of his problems. So he drank and drank and drank until he passed out. And he said the next thing that he remembers is waking up in the middle of the day, but he was outside. He wakes up into the afternoon sunshine, and this little girl is looking at him, you know, just staring. And so he's kind of beaming, he's waking, he realizes, and he smells 
the vomit, his vomit, because he's been drunk before and he realized he's looking at himself, he's slowly getting up from the ground and he sees the f- just disgustedness of his c- circumstance. And so he sees this vomit, he sees this little girl just staring at him and the next words that he heard was his, the little girl's mom calling from, Honey, honey, get over here! Get away from that filth! And he gets up and the little girl runs away to his mom and they both run quickly out of his presence. He wakes up and he realized that he was outside and where he spent the night was right next to the sewer, the street sewer. And so as he's smelling his vomit, he's also now getting to his senses and he's smelling the sewer. And he's sitting down and he's realizing, oh my goodness, am I a Christian? Is this what it means to be... God must be so ashamed of me. And as he was thinking about this and as he was realizing, man, God can't love me. I can't love my family properly. I can't love my kids and my wife properly. I can't even hold to my promise of not taking alcohol. And he's just sitting and he's looking at himself. Look at this vomit. Look at this. I am filthy. And as he was kind of going through this pity party, God spoke to him. Very clearly, he said in that moment. And God was telling him, Brennan, I loved you far before you ever cleaned yourself. I loved you in your vomit. I loved you in your days of filth. I loved you when I called you in your dirtiness. It is not because you put on clean clothes. It is not because you were good in my eyes that I chose you to be my child, that in your filthiness, I embrace you, I receive you as my own. And he said from that moment on, he had a radical paradigm shift of what it means to be a child of God, what it means to be Abba's child. And what he realizes is not, God didn't choose us because one day we changed our clothes, that we were good enough, we were clean enough, we were proper enough, that finally we got our act together and God finally sees us. All right, that's good. Now you can be my child. I'm not going to be ashamed of looking at you anymore. No, it was in our worst filthiness, vomit of sin that God adopted us to be his own. And that it is not us that cleans ourselves, that washes our clothes to be good enough. It is only by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ that washes away our filthiness and through that clothes us in the righteousness of Christ again, only by the grace of God. Amen? And so even for us, we need to understand that when we live our lives, don't get into the mentality that God loves me because I've been good, because I've been serving in the church, because I've been coming to church faithfully. That is not why God loves you. God loves you because he chose you. By grace alone. Amen? He is a God of second chances. He is a God of second thousands of chances. It is not because of what you've done. It is because of what Jesus Christ has done that we are acceptable in God's sight. Amen? So God also shows this grace upon Jonah, this rebellious, average Joe, this punk prophet that keeps running away from his call, God comes to him and gives him a second chance, not just to live, but also to stay on mission with God. Verse 3. Let's, read, let's get ready to read verse 3 together. Ready to begin? 
Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city, and a visit required three days. So this is Jonah's response now. Now, Jonah obeyed. Okay, so he does go. He obeyed the word of the Lord, went to the city of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. Now, this means that it was not only a big city, uh, it took three days for Jonah to finish his mission, but also it reinforces that this city and these people were important to God. Okay, so this great city, this important city. Verse 4, on the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Okay, so he proclaims a very short message. And literally, this message uh, is five words. So in essence, it could be like 40 days, be overturned. Okay, and this message Jonah proclaims actually has uh, double meaning. Okay, so this overturned word carries a couple meanings. This, it means this. You can be overturned by God's grace or you can be overturned by God's wrath. So in essence, Jonah is saying this. Turn your life over to God or God will turn your life over to death. Okay, so that's in essence what Jonah is saying. And so realize, again, he's just been puked up by this uh, huge fish, right? So he's got just vomit, right? It's probably still on him. probably still stinks, right? The stench. And so this weird... This filthy, vomit-smelling guy comes onto the scene, and he's just kind of going around. So, okay, 40 days, God's going to overturn you. Right? It's like all of your sin, God's going to judge. 40 days. Right? Now, why does God say this? Why does God send this message through this prophet like that? Because God not only gives second chances to his servants, God also gives second chances to his servants, to, his, to sinners. I'm sorry. So he not only gives second chances to servants, he gives second chances to sinners. Let's look at verse 2 again. Right? Let's read verse 2 one more time. Ready to begin? Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And so he doesn't call Nineveh that sinful city, that wretched city, that horrible city. Remember, that city was famous for how cruel they were, right? Of skinning people alive, chopping off people's heads, and making family members carry the heads on poles. It was just a horrible, horrible city. God doesn't call it like that. What does he call it? He says, go to what kind of city? The great city, right? Three times in the short book of Jonah, God calls Nineveh a great city. Chapter 1, verse 2, go to the great city of Nineveh. Chapter 3, verse 2, go to the great city of Nineveh. And chapter 4, verse 11, should I not be concerned about that great city? And literally, that verse, this verse, verse 2 in chapter 3 reads, go to Nineveh, which is a great city to me. Okay, that is what God is calling it. This wicked city, which was famous for its violence, God still had a heart for and when God looks upon this city, though it is filled with great sins, great sins of prostitution, great sins of embezzlement, great sins of lacking integrity in the corporate sector, in the teaching sector, this city, though it is filled with great sins, God still has a heart for it. It is still a great city to God because all people are important to God. Amen? All people are important to God. No matter how wretched their lifestyle, 
All people matter to him. So because all people are important to him, all people are given an opportunity to repent and turn back to him. So how does this evil city respond to God's simple and short message? Now realize Jonah, again, I I just love this guy. This guy's really amusing to me. He cracks me up. So this is really, in essence, what he's saying. Uh, Again, a very short message. He's going around uh, different parts of the, you know, block by block, area by area, and probably saying with very little enthusiasm. He doesn't want them to be saved. He will get get back on mission with God in order to be obedient. He doesn't want to go through that whole drowning fish thing again. But this is what he's saying. He's going, you know, by block by block, you know, turn or burn, guys, okay? Um, God's really ticked off at you. And you know, probably, where did you come from? Oh, you know, I rebelled against my God, who's really mad at you. And uh, this is what happened to me, you know? Puke, all right? So turn or burn, all right, guys? And so he's just kind of going literally about turn or burn, all right? God is ticked off at you. God does not like what you guys are doing. Mm-mm. He's just... Really doesn't really give him too much enthusiasm about, you better turn, guys, look at what happened. Just turn or burn, all right? And so this casual Joe, turn or burn Joe, right? All of a sudden, he's saying this, right? Turn, guys, or God's be overturned, or be overturned, right? Just all this stuff. How do they respond? Verse 5. Let's read that together, okay? Ready to begin? The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Now this, as a preacher, this really like humbles me hard. Okay, so this average Joe prophet preacher, guys, turn to God, he's really ticked, all right? Sinners, God doesn't like it. Turn, mm right? And then what happens? Revival breaks out. Okay? This casual, God doesn't like you guys, all right? See ya. Boom! They fall on their knees. They're repenting. They cry out. They declare a fast. They declare a fast, right? Let's all fast before God, right? So as these, he's going past each block, you know, these, it's like turn or burn as he's leaving. Revival is breaking out. People are, you know, the reason why this is so humbling, you know, it's like for, you know, for us, it's like, you know, like our staff, we're like praying, God, revive our congregation. Let this Sunday not be any other Sunday. Break forth, revive. We're like praying this, you know, and then Sunday comes, we're like, that's nice, right? Because I feel like, that's nice. Let's go home, right? And so, but Jonah, for example, right? So, but Jonah, he doesn't really care. And then revival spreads forth, right? They all believe this message. All of them. It says all of them. Everybody say all of them. Okay? They fasted, which signified seeking God's mercy. And then look at the last part. So all of them, from the greatest to the least, they put on sackcloth. Now, this wasn't like a new fashion statement that they were trying to bring in here, right? What that means is they were repenting. That was a symbol of repentance, that they're taking off their clothes of, you know, just good decency, and they're putting on sackcloth, they're fasting, humbling themselves before God's mercy. These were the regular people of Nineveh, okay? These were just the common people. They started, let's fast, let's fast, let's cry out to God. And then what happens to their king? Verse 6. It says, when the news reached the king of Nineveh. So this message is now spreading like wildfire. Okay, because Jonah didn't even reach the king. It says, when news reached the king. What happened? He rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, 
covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in dust. The king is doing this. He rose from his throne. He took off his royal robes. He covered himself with sackcloth, sat in dust. This is a picture of repentance, but also it is a picture of letting God overturn his life. Remember, the message that Jonah was proclaiming was overturn your life to God or God will overturn your life in judgment and death. He chose to overturn his life to God. The king of Nineveh, this king of this country, is now surrendering to the king of all creation. That is true conversion. When you step down from the throne of your own kingdom, of your own life, and let Christ become ruler over your life, that is true change. True conversion is when you overturn or, or turn over your life completely to Christ. You see, being a Christian is not about getting more knowledge. It's not about becoming so reformed in your theology you can pinpoint every single mistake your Bible study leader makes. That doesn't show that you've been changed by the gospel. Just because you know how to pinpoint the sins and the hypocrisy of every single church member in evangelicalism today, just because you know how to pick out the sins and how imperfect the church is today does not mean you have been changed by the gospel. True conversion is when your life is so overturned by Christ and the gospel that everything changes in your life. What you love changes. That if you love bringing people down, if you love seeing people fail, what you love begins to change when the gospel is inside of you. What you hate begins to change. If you love gossiping, if you still love swearing, if you still love watching movies that glorify the demonic realm or that abuse or demoralize people or women and children, if you still love doing stuff like that or surfing on the net things that you shouldn't be, that's still your passion. We have to really examine, has our hearts been overturned by the gospel? Because when your life is changed by the gospel, what you love changes, but also what you hate changes. What you hate changes. What do I mean by that? You will begin hating the sin that you struggle with, that you stumble with. Is there an increase in the hatred of sin that is in this world? The hate, not, the, not the hatred of sinners. That's easy to do. But the hatred of sin in this world. That's when you know something's starting to change. That's when you know the gospel is slowly starting to change you. That you're like God, like these people. When you see the wretchedness of your life, when you see what the current status quo is in the church today, you are like God. If fasting before you means a greater anointing, God, give me some fasting. I will fast gladly. There's a change in what you desire. There's a change in what you long for. When you have a choice between 
lusting and anointing. You're like, God, forget this. I want more anointing. When there's a choice between eating very well and then fasting for 40 days throughout this Lent because you want salvation to come upon your loved ones, you want to see a breakthrough in this ministry, you want to see greater power and anointing come upon this ministry, it's an easy choice. It's not a struggle anymore. Because your value system has finally been transformed into kingdom values. If you're struggling with tithing, God, I don't know if I should tithe. I know it's 10%, but maybe 1%. If that's a struggle for you, you don't understand that God's given you everything. Because when you understand that everything is grace and everything is mercy, and by the mercy and grace of God, I live and breathe and move and have my being, it's an easy choice. God, I will hunger for you. I will fast for you. I will hate this sin. It becomes easy because your value system has been transformed. It's been turned upside down. Amen? Does it mean we'll never struggle with sin? No, but it means that when you do, you really will struggle and fight and plead and fast and pray to starve out that sin that dishonors God. Lives change, hearts change, emotions change. What you love, what you hate will change if you've been saved. If you've been transformed by the gospel. And I don't mean that you've lifted up your hand when you were 12. I don't mean you signed a piece of paper when you were 14. That does not signify salvation. It is when a life changes, salvation has come. How we speak changes. How we show mercy and grace to people who are fallen changes when you encounter the gospel. Amen? So if you do not see that change in you, like, Eddie, I thought I was saved because I said a prayer. I thought I'm saved because I've been going to church my whole life. No, you're saved when your love for Christ radically keeps increasing and your hatred for sin for which Christ died also keeps increasing. Amen? It is not when Christ is a part of your life. That's not Christianity, people. How I have defined Christianity, and which we looked at even in our Philippians series. Christianity is not when Christ is a part of your life. You fit him in on Sundays. Christianity, when Christ is your everything. Everything. He dictates every facet of your life. How you spend money, how you love, who you have relationships with on an intimate level, how you have relationships. That's Christianity. When he is king of your life. When you do not wrestle with the will of God because you're longing, God, what you say, you call the shots. That's what I want to do. Not, God, I really want to do this. I'm sensing you want me to do God, oh, come on. That's not lordship. When you step off the throne of your life, as this king did, this king of Nineveh, you take off your royal robes. Say, God, I'm nothing without you. And you put on the righteousness of Christ. 
and you let him sit on that throne as the king of your life. Amen? That is Christianity, people. And this interesting king didn't stop there. Verse 7. Let's read verse 7 together. Ready to begin? Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. So everybody, the people declared a fast. So everybody's fasting and humbling themselves before God. And so now the king also steps in. And not only does he agree with this fast, he raises it up a notch. And so he says, even the animals are going to fast. They can't even drink. So, so there would be a lot of mourning. So these cows that are mooing before, they're really mooing now, right? They can't eat. It's like, moo! You know, like talking to the owner. Moo! Moo! You know, come on. Come on, I'm hungry, right? So all this mourning, this great mourning and wailing of both people and animals in the city would have been filled with the sounds of sorrow. And then get this, right? See, I'm telling you, the book of Jonah is so funny. Verse 8. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. So he even wants to put sackcloth on the animals. So as the cows are like mooing and I'm hungry, mooing, you know, and all this stuff. And then the owner's trying to put sackcloth on him. And he's like, moo, what the heck are you doing? You know, all this stuff is going on, right? And then he, the king says this, that everyone call urgently on who? On God. And the word here that is used is Elohim, meaning the true God. He's telling all of his people, cry out urgently to the true God, the one true God. Call out to him. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Okay, so then every animal, every person is putting on the sackcloth, right? And then they must all pray. Not like the sailors did initially, right? Captain in the boat before was like, call out to your own God. Maybe your God will answer. What does the king do? Call out to the one true God. Everyone, humble yourself before him. And as we saw last week, the right way to return to God begins with crying out to God in desperation. Because salvation is only possible through crying out to God. For those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen? Examples of this are throughout this book of Jonah, crying out to God. And we saw it. The captain and the sailors on the ship, they cry out to God. He saves. Right? Jonah in the sea cries out to God and he saves. And now Nineveh cries out to God and we shall see the response of God. And that is a picture, proper picture, of, again, returning to God the right way. Crying out to God. That in the midst of the vomit sin that we are filthily living in, that we don't try to clean ourselves up by ourselves, we cry out to the God alone who can save us and cleanse us again. And the king also declares that all must give up their evil ways and violence. Right? Look at what he says. Let them give up their evil ways. Let them give up their violence. He's saying, we must change how we've been living. That is true repentance. There must be a change in what we've been doing. Again, an increase in our love for God, an increase in our hatred for sin. 
And what is his rationale behind all of this? Verse 9. Who knows? Let's read this together. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. What is he doing? He is throwing himself at the mercy seat of God. Saying, who knows? I've heard about this amazing God, this God of Israel, this true God, this one true God that these people called these Israelites keep proclaiming about. I've heard of his ways that he is merciful, that he is slow in anger and abounding in love and compassion. Maybe, who knows? He's not assuming that God's going to relent. But he is throwing himself on the mercy seat of God. He's not saying, God, you should, do, you should do this, right? It's all a formula, right? You pray, you fast, you humble yourself, and then I'm going to get blessings. He does not assume that. He says, I deserve this. I deserve this punishment. I've led this nation in an evil way. I've led my life in a filthy way of vomit where all of this, these people that have been under me, they've been living a life of filthiness and vomit. We will humble ourselves. We will fast, and we will declare our nation, to be one that will humble ourselves before God. Who knows? Who knows? God, we're banking on you. We're leaning upon your grace, your mercy. And how does God respond to these people? God has mercy on all who come to him. Everyone repeat, God has mercy on all who come to him. Amen? That is the gospel. Verse 10, let's read that together. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. All receive mercy when we humble ourselves and return to him. When God sees truly humble people crying out to him, he responds with mercy. Why? Because in the kingdom of God, mercy triumphs over judgment. The reason he gives second chances, the reason why our God is a God of second chances is because whenever possible, he chooses mercy before judgment. James chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Let's read this beautiful verse together. Ready, begin? Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgments. Praise God. Praise God that our God is like this. That he, his first option will be mercy before judgment. Amen? I am so thankful that that is our God. So what is the proper response for a people who receives God's mercy, who receives God's second chances over and over again. What is our proper response? A few things. Number one, worship. That is the proper response. That when we think about who we are, where we've been, the filth that we live in, and that God chooses to receive us again and again. I don't know about you, but I just want to worship that God. Say, God, here I am. I worship you. I bless you. You are good. I am not. You are righteous. I am not. And if not for Christ, if not for your mercy, if not for grace, God, I am doomed. I have no hope in this life or eternity. We worship as a proper response. 
Second thing, we trust him, knowing that he knows what is best for our lives. So we choose obedience over rebellion. We choose his words over our sinfulness. We trust him. God, your ways are the best. Your deeds, your commands will lead me in the way of everlasting. I trust you in that. And third, we obey and follow his lead. Why? We follow him. We let our lives be overturned by grace. And then we go to the great cities of this world, from Bangladesh to Beijing to Seoul, throughout Saudi Arabia, we go to the great cities that are in need of the grace of God. Amen? That we get on mission with God. That you prayerfully use your vacation time to go to these cities that we are offering for short-term missions. And if you can't go then, you prayerfully consider going different places to bless the nations. There are many Nineveh still here today that are in need of messengers of grace. And you have been called to be that messenger. Amen? And another thing that we do is you prayerfully consider three people that are in need of the gospel. You surrender them up in prayer and you, we pray together for these names. Say, God, have mercy on them. Let them find Christ. Let us spend eternity with these people. Amen? Now, some of you guys might be like, Eddie, you know, I, I always feel guilty. You know, I feel like, Eddie, you, if you only knew what I did, if you only knew what I do, even now, uh, Eddie, you wouldn't say that. But you know what? Our God is a God of second chances. That no matter what you've done, when he forgives, you start with a blank slate once again. And what his words are to you, the same as the coaches. You get up, you get out there, and you finish strong because I'm not finished with you yet. Let's pray.